comes out of Galatians 5. It's a reading on the Holy Spirit. It's as we finish up this series. So hear now the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't I, why don't I pray for us? I'll, I'll just give us a moment. Uh, why don't we just close our eyes and uh, just be silent before the Lord and allow him to minister to us for a second and then, and then I'll pray. Father, I just pray that through today it would be manifest and clear that you work by your spirit. May we experience that work today in the proclaiming of your word. We want to hear from you. We want to be transformed. We want more for our lives than what we see. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. But we love freedom, right? We're, we're Americans. Yeah, I think that one of the most iconic vision of freedom is William Wallace, or, you know, the movie Braveheart. Or as about there, right, right as they're about to go into battle, William Wallace, Mel Gibson screams out, you know, they could take your lives, but they cannot take your freedom, right? Inspires these soldiers, which upon writing it, I realized that really makes no sense at all, right? If someone takes your life, I don't know if there's anything more that could take away your freedom than that. But freedom is so crucial to us. It's part of our social imaginary. It's the narratives we live by. I mean, think about the origins of this country. We tell a story of a religious sect 
trying to seek religious freedom or the revolution was freedom from taxation without representation. Or for for African Americans, right? Freedom is huge, freedom from slavery. But it's not just preeminent in our narratives about our country, it's it's in our art. I think of the genre of coming-to-age films, or the classic garden state, right? It's about youths becoming free of external pressure from their parents, from society. And that's a lot of how we now define ourselves. There's this fancy term called expressive individualism that philosophers throw around. But basically, it's that we have an internal identity, and our goal is to express it and realize it, that goes against previous generations, religious groups, or political authorities. It's, it's freedom from all of those things. But freedom is also key to the biblical narrative. Right? Israel is set free from bonds of slavery to Egypt. We are set free from the power of sin and death by Jesus' death. But here's the deal. I think the type of freedom that, that fills our imagination is the type of freedom expressed here by John Stuart Mill. He's a, a former member of parla- Parliament, 19th century kind of Enlightenment thinker. And here's how, what he says about freedom. He says, the only freedom which deserves the name, is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. In other words, we should be able to, free, we should be, able to be free to do whatever we want to do as long as that doesn't impinge on the freedom of others. And there's a lot that could be said about that, ethically, philosophically, whatever. But what's important to say about it today is that in the context of the church, that is a thoroughly unspiritual idea of freedom. Or to put it differently, freedom in the spirit does not look like that kind of John Stuart Mill freedom as expressed in the church. Or or to put it differently again, I think Paul would abhor actually the church in Galatia appropriating this idea of freedom is how to relate to one another, right? He thinks freedom is important. Galatians 5.1 begins, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But it's not a freedom from. It's a freedom to. It's a freedom of belonging. Or even more potently, to be free in the spirit is to become a slave to your brother. To be free in the spirit is to become a slave of your brother, your sister. And that's what our sermon is going to be about, is unpacking that right there. Is that, is that too strong? Well, we'll see. So what is spiritual freedom? And then we're asked, well, what gets in the way of this kind of freedom? And how do we live into that freedom? So to that first question, what is spiritual freedom? Well, freedom is a freedom that is slavery. We've been in this series on the Holy Spirit, the story of the Spirit. And a lot of it has been about what the Spirit does. Right? He is a creator. He gives new life. We become born again. He's an intercessor. And a lot of these things that we've talked about is just things that the Spirit does, his, his own self. Right? I, I can't make myself born again. The Spirit has to do that. The Spirit knows how to pray the will of God. He intercedes on my behalf. But here, we get to something where the Spirit and us are involved in the same work together. Synergism or sanctification. Right, The Spirit is calling us to participate in a way of life, into a particular calling. And it begins here in verse 13. He says, for you, this is Paul, for you were called to freedom. 
again. This is one of the most important points that Paul has in the book of Galatians. Right? People were trying to put others in bondage to human tradition. And Paul says, no, no, no. Christ has set you free from all of that. Right? He has set you free for the sake of freedom itself. So Christ is a William Wallace. Not really. But the inbreaking of spirit does not result in a freedom from others. Right? As people aren't a constraint notes of freedom to others. Notice how the verse continues. He says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, verse 13, become slaves of one another. How did Paul get here? How did he get to a place of such extremes? Well, it goes back earlier in Galatians. And no surprise, it starts with Jesus where he describes this. He says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That, that the pattern is set by Jesus. That Jesus has come into the world, or like Philippians 2.7, we've talked about that before, that he, that he took on the form of what? He took on the form of a slave. And he made his life about being for others. That he gave himself. And his motivation was love. And then as his argument throughout Galatians continues, he lands in Galatians 4, 6, where he says this, because you are sons, he says to the Christians in Galatians, God has sent forth the spirit of whom? The spirit of his son. Which means the spirit is one coming, sourced from Jesus, and also characterized by Jesus. The spirit is coming in the way of Jesus, and he's going to be like Jesus. And if the spirit is inside of us, making us like Jesus, what is that going to mean for us? Well, we're going to act like him as well, which leads us into Galatians 5.13. Through love, become slaves to one another, right? So Jesus, through love, gave himself. Now we, through love, give ourselves. Verse 15 clarifies this even more. It says this, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Right? In other words, the mindset of freedom that Paul gives is supposed to reorient the whole community. Verse 26, he says, do not become boastful, competing against one another or envying one another. You see, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, everything existed in strict hierarchy. And within the hierarchy, there was a lot of competition, which is what Paul is referencing in verse 26. Don't, don't compete one another. Or in other words, it's not a dog-eat-dog world. We're not supposed to bite one another. And so Paul flips the idea of, of how to relate to one another on its head. Right? It's not about hierarchy. In fact, you're supposed to make yourself lowest, the lowest thing you can be. And so for us as well, he's flipping on its head our own idea of freedom. Right? He flips the John Stuart Mill quote, on its head. I think one of the key problems of that quote is that people become an obstacle. Right? It's, I can do what I, what I want as long as, as you don't get in my way and I don't get in your way. Right? That's how I, I end up viewing people with that version of, of freedom. But what Paul is saying that people aren't obstacles. They're actually the goal of freedom. You've been set free from any constraint so that you can become bound to your brother and to your sister. That is what spirit-filled people actually look like. Hear this quote from uh, James Dunn. He's a, he's a great scholar. He says, As soon as a charismatic experience 
becomes an experience only of the exalted Christ, not also the crucified Jesus. It loses its distinctive Christian character. In other words, his charismatic experience, he's talking about an experience with the Spirit. Right? If, if we, being Spirit-filled people, are acting just as rulers, but not as Christ on the cross, then there's actually nothing at Christian about our spiritual lives. So how do we respond to that? Well, I think first and foremost, probably for a lot of us, it's just beginning with repentance. I don't, I don't think we walk into this room and, and think, man, I'm, I'm coming in here as, as a bondservant to my brothers and sisters here. But that's not our first disposition towards one another. And yet Paul is saying this is what spiritual life is defined by. It's not by long prayers. It's not by your prophecy. It's by this disposition towards one another. That is what spirit-filled life is like. Now, a caveat could be made that, that we, we are to have boundaries in our relationships, and of course that's true, but Paul doesn't make that caveat here, and so I'm not going to spend time making that caveat either. But I think this is important specifically for our community. Because this is the most important and foundational thing to build any church community on. It's more important than who's preaching. It's more important than who's the pastor. More more important than anything is whether or not we are living out this spirit-filled life, that we're walking into these doors as people freed to become one another's slaves. All right, now what what gets in the way of that? Um, You know, we've kind of alluded to this idea of kind of this, this American narrative, right, that might work against it, but there's actually a bigger problem, which brings us to our second point, uh, second part of this sermon, the I who won't die. We'll talk about the, fret, the flesh. Uh, over, over these past weeks, I've read lots of different uh, essays and read from different books, and one of my favorite ones that I came across was about Paul's use of the term spiritual and how it built social identity for his churches, right? Because for the early Christians, there are two events that defined the identity of the church, and they were of equal importance. It was the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. These two things were equally foundational. It defined their understanding of themselves. But what's interesting from this essay is that the way early Christians used the word spiritual is vastly different than the world around it. Okay, so the Greek word for spirit is also the word for wind. So the primary use of the term for spiritual in the first century actually had to do with, with being like gaseous. And so here's my favorite part, okay? You can see where this is going. Outside of the New Testament in the first century, related to gas in people's bodies and also to flatulence. There's literally a reference to someone uh, at, a, at a dinner party being spiritual, and that is relating to them being flashed. So just go with me in your mind. I'm imagining this Christian community who's totally unlike anywhere else inviting an outsider, and they hear like a lot of spiritual things are happening in that church. And you're like, oh my goodness, like is it at least an outdoor meeting? Do you know what I mean? Or like maybe that was the first time someone was asking if it was mask required for the smell. I don't know, that might have been trying too hard, but I just, it was too good not to share. Uh, but that's real, okay? Uh, but they were using the Spirit differently than, than anyone else. And, and this is really crucial for our passage. 
Because what the Spirit signified was an inbreaking of something entirely new, a new realm and a new era. So I'm going to put up this, uh, it's not really a graph, but uh, these two columns. And And let me describe to you what these represent. It's the old realm and the new realm. And this is going to help explain the Spirit and what the Spirit does. So in the old realm and era, this is how Paul thinks of the worlds, mind you. This is how he thinks and and talks in Galatians. There's an old realm that is present but will end, and it's marked by evil. So Galatians 1.4 says, Christ has rescued us from this present evil age. And that's what he's talking about. And the rulers of that realm are sin and death, and the way they rule is through the flesh and through the law. So that's what he talks about. These, these people in Galatia are, are trying to convince other Christians to live through the law. And he's like, if you live through the law, all that does is put you under sin and death because of your flesh. You're too weak to fulfill the law. And because you can't fulfill the law, you're condemned by sin, which means you will die, which puts you in another realm and another era, which is not marked by righteousness or by Jesus. That's the argument of Galatians in one part. The second part is that a new realm and era has come in that's present and will be consummated into its fullness. And that's marked by righteousness, right? All throughout Galatians, Jesus says, uh, he is, or Paul says that you have been justified, you have made, been, you've been made righteous by Jesus. And the ruler is Christ, and the way he rules is through the Spirit. So that means now you have the option to live in two realms, either the, the old realm or the new realm. But if you, if you live by the flesh in one, you can't live by spirit in another, and they will be in opposition. Now take this now into these next verses, in verses 16 through 18. Here's what it says. I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Did you hear it? Did you see it? Right? If you are are in the flesh, you are in opposition to the Spirit. They do not go together. And he says that you are set free from the law by being in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit belongs to a different era, a different way of life, a different kingdom versus the law, versus the flesh. Right? To live in the Spirit is opposed to living in the flesh. And the reason why Paul brings up the flesh-spirit dichotomy now is to answer the question of what gets in the way of his command to live as slaves to one another. It's the flesh that gets in the way. Here's now where we need a definition for the flesh. It's this. Uh, David De Silva, this is the best definition I, I think I found for this moment in Galatians, says the flesh is the sum total of the impulses urges, and desires that lead human beings away from virtue towards self-promotion and self-gratification, often at the expense of the interests and well-being of others. Right, The flesh is the part of us that was before we were in Christ, the part that isn't in Christ, the part that isn't Christian. It was the way of life before we knew Jesus. And it's something that is true of everybody. And it's marked by a desire to serve your own self, your own interests, self-gratification. I think one of the best illustrations I can think of for the flesh is from the movie The Hunger Games. 
Have you ever seen uh, that series? It's, it's in the very first Hunger Games. And it's a dystopian movie based on a novel. And there's a, a, a scene where the two main characters are at this ridiculous dinner, so lavish, full of the wealthiest people in that society. And there's way too much food for anyone to eat. And so someone comes up to the main characters with a cup and they say, hey, drink this. It'll make you be able to eat as much food as you possibly want, to just eat and taste every single thing. That, that is the flesh. It's of the bottomless pit of desire to fill and fulfill our own gratification. And so Paul goes and lists and says, this is what it looks like to operate by this flesh. Verse 19 through 21, he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. He lists the first three, immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Right? In other words, the flesh operates through seeking unending sexual desire. A lot of us have experienced this. We've, we've known what it's like to operate under the power of, of the flesh when it comes to seeking out some sort of unchastity. And especially when we live in a culture that tells us the lie that you cannot control yourself sexually. Right at your core, you are a sexual individual and you must let it loose. That is a lie of the flesh. And he says the next two, idolatry and sorcery, right? Idolatry in the first century was basically an attempt to just control your fate and outcome. You sacrifice to God so they would be happy with you and then your life would go well with you. Same with sorcery. We're less versed on that. That's not, uh, you know, our common world. But they had, there was like love potions. It's, it's fascinating what first century people do. They did love potions or, or try to engage with spirits, but it's the same idea, trying to control outcome. But that is the flesh seeking selfish control over our lives. And then he lists eight words that all relate to divisiveness within a community. Listen to it. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. The results of selfishness in a community leads to destructive behavior in a community. And the last two, drunkenness and carousing or orgies is the actual word. In other words, just another picture of, of grotesque oversatisfaction trying to gratify by as, as, as much impurity as possible. That is what the flesh is. And here's what Paul says about living in the flesh. He says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Well, just as we saw, living in the flesh belongs in a different realm, a different kingdom than living under the rule and reign of Jesus. Now, here's the thing, right? We see some of those things on that list, and we're like, well, shoot, I have done that. Even as I wrote this sermon, I was, had an outburst of anger, which is listed here while I was writing my sermon. My wife can testify to this. So what is Paul getting at? I want to I read this quote again by James Dunn. It says, Life in the flesh can very easily and quickly and unconsciously become life according to the Spirit. What this means is that we are still people caught in the middle. We're caught in between the realms. We're, we're caught in between flesh and spirit. We have habits. We have broken bodies. We have 
ways that we've been brought up and conditioned in this world that leads us to react in certain situations with outbursts of anger or with envy. Those are things still a part of us. But living according to the flesh is when we become unrestrained in our flesh. We become unrestrained with the seeking our self-gratification. It's not that we just struggle, but it's actually we give up struggling. That is life according to the Spirit. And if we live that way, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. But do you see why our, our main point here is, in, in a certain sense, seems impossible? Right? To, to show up here, to be a church where we are slaves to one another, is impossible because there's this flesh piece of us that only wants to live for ourselves. Right? That is the greatest hindrance to being a community of people who are constantly serving one another. But here's the thing. The message of this passage is not a message of despair, saying, hey, just give up. <laughs> You're in the flesh. No, this message is one of hope about what life can have or can be like in the spirit. So this goes to our final thing, living in the spirit. Let's just jump uh, to verse 24. Paul says this, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right, he says the flesh, as we've already described it, has been killed. It was killed with Christ on the cross. The flesh and its power is done. Your passions, those passions and desires of the flesh are dead. It has no sway. It has no say-so over our lives because it's been crucified with Christ. He's already taken care of it. And I want to probe a little bit into the significance of that. Right? If the flesh, this, this self-gratification is a universal thing for all human experience, which is pointing us to live for one purpose, to live for ourselves. If that has been killed and done away with, then we are left with a void. Which is, what do we live for? Right? If the thing inside of us that wants us to live for ourselves has been killed, what do we live for? Well, the answer is obvious, right? We live, we live for God. Wrong. At least according to this passage. According to Galatians, everything is fulfilled by living for our neighbor. I skipped over this verse, but jump back to verse 14. Paul says this, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying the whole law, all righteousness, your purpose, your goal, is not the first commandment, right, to love the Lord God, or, or, or sorry, to, to not have any gods before the one Lord. No, he says it's to love your neighbor as yourself. The flesh has been killed. You no longer live for yourself. Instead, you live by the Spirit for others. That's what fills that void. The selfish flesh is done, which then makes sense of what the fruit of the Spirit are. So look at the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 23. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. They're all about community. They're all about how we interact with one another. Here's the Spirit, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Love in, in all of Paul's letters is about loving others. Joy, we've spent so much time talking about how joy is relational. Peace, he's not talking about inner peace, right? He's talking about all the division that's happening in, in Galatia and saying it's, by living in the spirit, you will have peace with one another. 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness is a disposition towards other people. Faithfulness is about loyalty to one another, not giving up on one another, self-control, not choosing our own desires, but choosing the good of others. The fruit of the Spirit is primarily about how we treat one another. I don't know if that's new for you. That's, that was new for me in studying this passage of realizing the fruit of the Spirit is, is rooted in community. That the, that the bearing out of the fruit of the Spirit is how we treat one another. Why? Because the flesh is dead. We live by the Spirit, and the Spirit makes us servants of one another. You want to see evidence of the Spirit in your life? How do you treat your brother and sister? I just want to press, just in this last piece of just how do we actually live into this? How do we get better at this? Paul says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Two things from this verse. First, it requires effort. It requires synergism. It's the work of the Spirit and our work, becoming aware of ourselves. It's not... It's not easy to love one another. It's not easy to be in a community where we serve one another. But the idea is walking. We're actually moving towards something. There's an idea of longevity. It takes time. Think about even fruit. Fruit takes cultivation. We're not going to arrive there overnight. I'm not going to become loving, patient. I'm not going to give up outbursts of anger overnight. It's going to take a long and lifetime of walking in the Spirit. The second piece is this, to walk in the Spirit also means doing the continual work of killing the flesh. Right, Christ came as the exterminator. He exterminated the flesh, but like any extermination, right, you need to do the maintenance. You need, you need the monthly check-in, the monthly spraying. Here's a great, great quote I, I want to read that describes this. It says, the Spirit has an active killing function. Through the Spirit, what took place decisively in the death of Christ continually takes place. The believer dies to the old life according to the flesh. The believer is still part of an untransformed world and through the body is subject to the attack of the old powers. But in the face of such attacks, the believer's past death with Christ must be maintained and affirmed in the present. Thus, the believer's existence continues to be characterized by dying with Christ. In other words, this, the role of the Spirit is to actively kill the parts of us that are seeking our selfish ends. And the way we do this, the way we fight this flesh, is through prayer. Right? We need the Spirit to change our, our taste buds, to desire new things. We need the Spirit to give us power to say no to sin. We need the Spirit to make us into new people. Right, if we do these things in the Spirit, we will grow in walking in the Spirit, right? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. So life in the Spirit is about freedom, but it's freedom from the powers of this evil age, which includes the flesh, but not freedom from belonging to our brother and sister. So become a slave to him or to her. This is life in the spirit of the Son. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, 
We love you. We thank you that you have loved us enough to give yourself for us. And I just pray throughout uh, this series that, that we have encountered your spirit. We've encountered the third person of the Trinity who is, who is interested in making us more like Jesus and giving us new life and transforming us. I pray and ask that this church would be marked by your fruit, Holy Spirit, that we would put on those fruit. We pray all this in your name, Jesus.